We uh, started a series last uh, Sunday morning that uh, we've entitled Understanding the Times. There's a verse of scripture in the Old Testament book of Chronicles, second book of Chronicles, I believe it is, where it speaks of a certain tribe of people that had understanding of the times. And it commends them, the Bible commends them because they recognize the times that they live in. Well, we live in important times too. Probably the most, in my opinion, the most important times in the history of the world because I believe we're the generation that will see Jesus come back. Now, every generation has said that since Jesus was raised from the dead. What makes us any different? Well, the signs of the things that are going on around us. The things that the Bible says will be at the end and the things that are happening in our day. We are a generation that are seeing things that no other generation has ever seen. Now, I'm going to remind you, uh, if you want to, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter, uh, we'll start with about chapter 5, I guess. Last week, we talked about the rapture a good deal, well, some, anyway, uh, you could talk about it forever, I guess. Today, we want to talk about the tribulation, but let me remind you of something that Daniel said. Daniel spoke a lot, prophesied a lot about end-time things, and and uh, it's uh, a lot of people know of Daniel's 70 weeks. Sixty-nine weeks uh, are identified. One week is uh, identified as a seven-year period. And um, uh, 62 weeks, it talks about as um, uh, up to the time of Jesus. And then there's a break between the, the 69th and the 70th week, and that break is the church age. Now, Daniel says about the things of the end, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But thou, O Daniel, here's God speaking to Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. I want you to notice that phrase, the time of the end. Now, what do we know about the time of the end? Notice what it says. Many shall run to and fro. It means travel shall increase. And knowledge shall increase, shall be increased. Those are two uh, things that are taking place today more than anything uh, any other time in a greater degree than any other time. Now, the time of the end is identified in Scripture as uh, a very specific start time and a very specific end time. We know that the Bible speaks of the last days. Well, what does it mean when it talks about the last days? It's talking about what Daniel was uh, told by the Lord, the time of the end. The time of the end began with the resurrection of Jesus, and it ends with the rapture of the church. The time of the end is the church age. So we are two thousand, roughly 2,000 years into the time of the end or into the church age or into the last days. And the Bible gives us some very important information. Um, the book of Revelation, we, we are, our intent with this, uh, this series is to talk about the rapture. We did some of that last week. We will continue to this week as well. Uh, talk about the tribulation. We want to talk about the, the um, return of Jesus in power and glory and the millennium. And then we want to talk about the end. Uh, the end of time, literally the end of time. So we've got more to do than, than what we have time to do, which is not unusual for me. But um, uh, we want to take care of uh, some of these things. We, we don't, I, this is not intended to be a, a verse by verse or a chapter by chapter exposition on the, the uh, book of Revelation. Uh, we've done that at other times, and if you need to get the, the teaching on that, it's available in the bookstore. But we want to have uh, an understanding. We want, as the, the people of God, we want to have an understanding of what is coming so that we know to prepare for it. Now, John is the one that received the revelation. And it's interesting that the revelation is not called the revelation of the end. It's not called the revelation of doom and gloom. 
It's not called the revelation of terrible things to come. It's the revelation of Jesus. Now, the one thing that you want to keep in mind as a, as a member of the family of God, the number one thing about the book of Revelation is it's about Jesus. It's not about the devil. Now, some people have the idea that, well, you can't understand the book of Revelation. Then why didn't God call it, why did God call it Revelation then? Revelation means to be revealed or to be un- uncovered or, or that which was hidden to be shown openly. He wants you to know. He's not trying to keep you in the dark about anything. But the reason that so many people get confused, it seems to me at least, is that they're trying to talk about the devil and they're trying to focus on the devil and his works and all this kind of stuff where the end is concerned. And folks, the end is all about Jesus. Now, I want you to notice that uh, in uh, chapter 4, did I tell you to turn to chapter 4? Is that where I told you to start? Okay, well, back up to 4. John gives an introductory chapter. Chapter 1 is an introduction to tell about what happened to him. Chapter two's and Chapters 2 and 3 are letters to the churches. Chapter 4 begins the revelation of Jesus concerning the end of times or the time of the end as Daniel spoke of it. Now let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Here's what starts the revelation of what we know of the tribulation period. It said, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, he's already been in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's already seen Jesus. Jesus has already told him things, messages to the church. But notice he says, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard. Now, that's the voice that he refers to in chapter 1 where Jesus spoke to him and gave him the messages to the church. The first voice I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Now, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know how to describe a voice that sounds like a trumpet that's talking to you. But that's the way John described it. He said it was a voice as of a trumpet talking with me, which said, notice what the voice said, come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter, things yet to come. Now, come yet to come from when? He's already given the churches the message. The church, the messages to the churches are all be faithful, overcome. Here's how you overcome. Here's the reward that's available to you for overcoming. Now he says after that, after the warning to the, uh, to the churches, he says, I'm going to show you things which will come up, will come hereafter. But notice where he does it from. He does it from a different location than John was physically located. The voice said, come up hither. Verse 2, and immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So when God said, when the voice of the Lord Jesus spoke as the voice that sounded like a trumpet talking, when he said, come up hither, where does John go? He goes to heaven. Now, I don't know if he went physically or if he went in spirit. I don't know. Paul talked about a similar experience to this. Paul talked about in in writing to the Corinthians, he said, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into heaven and heard heard words which are unlawful to speak. King James says unlawful. It literally means I don't have anything to describe these words that I heard to you. Now, John is describing a voice that sounds like a trumpet. Okay, good try, John, but I don't think you're really getting across to me at least what you mean. Maybe one day when we hear the voice, we'll say, oh, okay, now I understand what John was trying to say. But how do you describe things that are beyond anything that you've ever experienced before? How do you relate something that nobody has ever experienced to somebody that has never experienced it? How do you describe a tree to a blind person? Do you see what I mean? 
These are things that are that have never been seen, things that have never been heard, things that have never been experienced. John is doing his best, but he says he's caught up into heaven. Paul said the same thing about himself. He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Well, that tells me right away that Paul was by himself when this experience happened. Because if I'd been with Paul, praying with Paul, and he was caught up into heaven, I would have known whether he left spiritually or with his body. So would you. But he must have been by himself. There was nobody here to say, yeah, Paul, your body disappeared. Or what do you mean you went to heaven, your body stayed right here? There's nobody to tell him. It happened for him alone, just like it happened with John alone, and both of them were caught up into heaven. Now, did he go physically? I don't know. Maybe he just went in spirit. That's very possible, probable in my in my thinking. But notice that the book of Revelation, talking about the end-time events, things that are to come hereafter, starts with a catching up into heaven. That's significant, folks. And he says he sees certain things. What does he see? He uh, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That's God. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow around about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Sounds pretty. Verse 4, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6, and there was before the throne, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast, it talks about what he looks like. God must think these things look good. I, I don't I don't know. It's a little different, but maybe we'll see when we get there. Okay, notice what the things that Paul said, or John said, excuse me. Notice the things that John identified. He identified the throne of God. Well, we know that's got to be in heaven. He identified the elders, 24 of them sitting around the throne. Then he identified the seven spirits of God. And then he talked about the sea of glass. Now, the rule of Scripture is very simple. This, simply this. Anytime the Bible talks about a sea, if it doesn't identify which sea it's talking about, like the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee or something like that, anytime it speaks in a figurative manner about seas, it's talking about people. Now, how do we know this is talking about people? Well, notice what's represented before the throne. The 24 elders represent the church. Elders are always representatives of man to God and God to man. If there's 24, we know the 12 tribes of Israel. That's God's signs of government. The 12 tribes of Israel, plus we know the 12 disciples or apostles that he chose, which the foundation of the church was upon, was laid upon. So we see a a number of 24, which represents both the old covenant servants of God and the new covenant, New Testament church. Now, if the saints are there, if all the representatives are there, how is it possible that the church is not there with them? Furthermore, he said the seven spirits of the, the seven spirits of God are there. The Holy Spirit's there in complete and total manifestation. How is that possible if you and I are still here on the earth? One of the th- simple rules of Scripture is: if any part of it's a lie, it's all a lie. It has to be true. It has to be absolutely true in order for it to be the Word of God. God said the Holy Spirit. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that He would abide with you forever. How long is forever? Does forever mean until the tribulation, or does forever mean forever? God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If the Holy Spirit is in heaven in full manifestation, it's impossible for the church to still be on the earth. 
Furthermore, we see about the elders. We see in chapter 5, it goes in and explains a little bit more about the elders. It says in verse 8, And when he had taken the book, this is talking about Jesus, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice the elders are associated with the prayers of the saints. The connection is the elders and the connected to the church. Verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made unto us our, uh, made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Who is that if it's not the church? The sea of glass is the church. It's the rapture of the church. Chapter 15, verse 2 talks about a sea of glass mingled with fire, indicating the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. The book of Revelation starts with, well, the, the times of the end, the times of the tribulation period, start with the church and its presence in heaven. Please understand that nothing happens before the church is in heaven. Now, one thing we know is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 7 and 8, I believe it is, it says that the mystery of iniquity, the work of the Antichrist, is already at work here on the earth, but he, the individual, the Antichrist, cannot be revealed until the one that's preventing him and hindering him from being revealed is taken out of the way. Now, who is that? It's the church. The Bible speaks specifically about the church being the hindering power of God. We are the body of Christ. We're the only thing stopping the Antichrist from being uh, revealed now. If our generation does see Jesus come back, then the Antichrist has to be alive. And the church is holding it back. Now, folks, that may be the biggest miracle of all time to me. The church, as disjointed as it is, as weak as it is, as greatly as the majority of the church denies the truth and the power of God's word, we're still the thing holding him back. We're holding back the devil's biggest and best shot. Imagine what we could do if we acted like the church. Well, chapter 5, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, tells us the first things that happen regarding the end after the church is in heaven. It says, uh, verse 1, Chapter 6, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard, as it was the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. Notice no arrows, just a bow. How good is a bow without arrows? What are you going to do with that? He that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, folks, i got to tell you, this cannot be Jesus. Some people see this white horse, crowns, and all this kind of stuff, and they think, well, that's Jesus. I thought Jesus already had his crowns. I thought Jesus was already crowned when he defeated the devil. I thought that's the reason why he sat down on the right hand of the Father and why Jesus told the church, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. I thought Jesus already conquered. Who's he got left to conquer? This isn't Jesus, folks. This is somebody that takes power on the earth. Somebody without weapons, but with the appearance of a great person. The appearance of a conqueror. This is the Antichrist. Well, then, if Second Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8 is true, then the church has to be out of the way before he can be revealed. That substantiates even further that the sea of glass 
in chapter 5 is the church standing before the throne of God. Now, the second thing it says happens, the second seal, and this really is the beginning of the tribulation period. Verse 3, it says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard a second beast saying, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. The first thing that the Bible says, other than the Antichrist given freedom to do his thing here on the earth, the next thing it refers to is a war. Now, the war that's talked about, the war that's referred to is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It talks about a gathering, Russia being the head, Iran being the, the second, you know, right-hand man, second in charge, but a coalition of armies that come and attack Israel. Now, not everybody agrees that that's the war that, that Revelation chapter 6 is talking about. But if it's not, I mean, it's World War III. Let me read to you some of the... Um, uh, some of the players in this, uh, in this war. It says that, um, it's talking about Gog and Magog. Gog is the leader of Russia. Magog is Russia itself. Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, those are the form, those are, uh, according to ancient maps, those are territories that are now known of as the former Soviet republics. Persia is Iran. Kush is the Sudan, Ethiopia, and, uh, uh, Eritrea. Put is Libya, Algeria, and Tunisia. Gomer is Turkey and parts of uh, Germany and Austria. Beth Tagarma is in the list. That's Armenia and the Turkish-speaking peoples of Asia Minor and Central Asia. It said it speaks of countries with mountainous borders with Israel. That's Syria, Lebanon, and northern Jordan. It speaks of many people with them also. All the, the uh, previous territories in previous countries are Islamic territories. And then finally it mentions Sheba and Dedan which is probably Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, and the Gulf states. If you put all these things together, put all these countries together, you'll find out basically they are Islamic states that are joined against Israel, and they come down from the north through Syria to attack Israel, and that begins the first day of the of the tribulation. Now, like I said, not everybody agrees that that's the way that it works. Okay, if that's not the way that it works, then that means we've got World War III to come before the tribulation starts. Now, Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells very specifically what happens when this war begins. It says that in one day, one 24-hour period, Israel is standing alone. There's no other country, America included, that stands with them. It says that God destroys not only the armies, but he reigns, he reigns upon the countries that, are, that make up this coalition armies or coalition group. He reigns uh, hailstones mingled with fire on those countries and leaves only the sixth part of the countries, not the armies. He destroys the armies and the weapons. And it says those weapons um, burn for seven years. That's an interesting number because that's the length of the tribulation period. But it says that he leaves the sixth part of those nations. Now, folks, I want you to consider something. And again, this is about the revelation of Jesus. This is not the revelation of the devil. This is not anything other than God showing himself strong. We know that the greatest threat to modern civilization is radical Islam. Anybody that's got a brain knows that, which leaves out most of Washington. However, it's clear that the threat to society at large, specifically democratic nations, specifically America, specifically Israel, is radical Islam. Now, I I hate the term radical Islam because the fact is Islam preaches jihad. Good Muslims 
are terrorists. Now, I know I get in a lot of trouble with that for saying that. But what I mean by that is very simple. Not every, uh, not every Christian obeys the Bible, do they? Not every Muslim obeys the Koran. But a devout Koran-following Muslim wages war on infidels. So we're kidding ourselves to say that there is moderate Islam. There, there is not any such thing as moderate Islam. Islam is a, is a, a, a religion of war, pure and simple. Now, that doesn't mean every Muslim wages war or wants to, and I get that. But Islam is not a religion of peace. This idea that's fostered on the world in our society in America that Islam is a religion of peace, that is hogwash. I've read the Koran. I see what it says for itself. The only question is, are you going to do what it says or not? And that's the same question it is for the Bible. The fact is, the terrorists, the ones that are creating the problem around the world, are people that are obeying the Koran. So I really hate to use the term radical Islam because Islam is radical. It's not like there's a radical section which is fostered on the, the ideas, that idea is fostered on America. You know, there's a small percentage that are radical. Well, that means that there may be a small percentage that are obeying the Koran, but that's what the Koran says to do. But if you look at the list of countries that make up this, uh, this coalition group in Ezekiel 38, they're all Islamic nations. God takes care of them in one day. What is the world's problem to us, God takes care of in a day. And he only leaves the sixth part. Now, if you do the math, one-sixth of 100% is 17%. That means he destroys 83% of the Muslims, the people in these nations that wage war against Israel in one 24-hour period. Now, I'm going to tell you things that I know, and I'm going to tell you things that I think and things that I speculate. Because I could be wrong on anything that, that the Bible doesn't say for sure. This is one of those things. I don't know for sure, but I suspect Islam is going to have a hard time recruiting after that, after that event. <laughs> this will of Allah stuff shows day one of the tribulation to be not worth much. Do you understand what's happening here? Folks, you know what the book of Revelation is to me? Book of Revelation, is, and I like movies like this, where there's a peaceful farmer, rancher, whatever it is in the Old West. He's just trying to get along, but boy, there's, there's one cattle baron that's trying to take over the whole territory. And he tries to run out the small farmer. And the small farmer, he's, he's the star of the movie, you know, and he's just a good old guy. and He's just trying to keep peace and stuff. Well, they start picking on his ranch hands. And he does everything he can to keep peace and, and he, you know, calms his guys down. Let's don't have a range war. Let's don't start a problem here. Let's just, yeah, we know he's, he's evil. We know what his purpose is, but let's just keep it going. And then he just lets it go and lets it go and lets it go. And finally, the evil rancher kills his son. And the farmer puts on his guns and he turns out to be the, the, the agent of death. He turns out to be ninjas on steroids, you know. I mean, he just wipes everything out. That's what the book of Revelation is like. It's like God put up with the attack of the enemy against Israel. God put up with the attack of the enemy against his, his people, his son. He put up with the attack of enemy, attack of the enemy, the attack of the devil against the church. But finally, he pulls the church out of, way, out of the way, and then God does his thing. 
It's like God finally says, okay, you want trouble with me? Now you got it. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's why it's the revelation of Jesus, not the revelation of doom and gloom. God has a scorched earth policy. <laughs> Literally. So day one of the tribulation, and again, the first thing we see happening in tribulation is the, the Antichrist is revealed. In other words, he's released. By that, think of how this works. If, if, the, if the war in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is day one of the tribulation, and if it's not, somebody tell me where else it fits. You, are we going to have World War III before? Um, are we going to have the destruction of Islamic nations around the world before the tribulation comes? It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense, to me at least. It does to some people. Some people argue the point. But to me, it seems to make sense that it's day one of the tribulation. And, and I think that's why it says that the weapons burn for seven years. That's a, that's a convenient number when you fit it into tribulation times. If the Antichrist is in charge of this war in Ezekiel 38 and 39, then he's going to be shown right off the bat to be a worthless leader. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if he's the one that comes up with the idea that Russia and Iran and all these other guys attack Israel and then they're soundly defeated, who's going to follow him after that? But I want you to consider a couple of things. If most of Asia, most of, of Europe... And, or um, uh, at least a significant part of Europe, and most of the Middle East is destroyed because of this war that begins the tribulation period, there's going to be a lot, a total vacuum of leadership. Now, Russia's not a, a player anymore. Now, Iran's not a player. You've got nuclear nations that are no longer issues. Who's going to step into that gap and be a leader? Well, you know what it's like. People get tired of war. People experience wars, and it's like, okay, we don't want any more to do with that. The Antichrist comes on the scene and says, I'm a man of peace. Let's create peace. And the first thing he does is he makes a peace treaty with Israel. It specifically says that he makes a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. Now, who makes a treaty that's supposed to last only seven years? Yet that's what happens. He comes in and says, we want seven years of peace. Well, after three and a half years, he turn, he breaks that agreement and becomes a man of war, and then he becomes the one to attack Israel. But, folks, my point is simply this. We've got these ideas, and some of it through Hollywood or whatever. We've got these ideas that, that the Antichrist is some giant evil force. Folks, he could be Prince Charles of England. He could be some nobody. But there's nobody left. I mean, the European, uh, the European Union, a lot of those nations are going to be completely devastated. Europe, for the most part, is going to be impotent. Everybody's armies are going to be wiped out or at least defunct. And so now it's a perfect situation for somebody to step in, somebody that may be nobody before to step in and say, I'll lead us out of this. Well, you remember, um, think of it like this. When God led Israel out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies chased after Moses and the children of Israel and they were drowned and destroyed, the firstborn of Egypt had already died. Who's left to lead? History shows that Egypt sent letters to their enemies saying, give us a king. We need a king. All of our men are gone. 
Our armies are gone. Our firstborns of all, the firstborn of all of our families are gone. We need a king. We want to make peace with you. You give us somebody from your nation. We'll let him be king over us. Well, if that's what happened in Egypt with just one thing that God did and leading them out, what's going to happen in the beginning of the tribulation? The first day, God wipes out everything. Now, the next thing it says in Revelation chapter 6, it says the third and the fourth seals. The third seal is famine. Remember, that's one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that would be a sign of the end. There'd be pestilence and famine, and along with earthquakes in diverse places. Finally, the fourth seal identified in Revelation chapter 6 is death. And it says that death and all these things... Now, um, we have to be careful that we don't look at things in a specific manner when they're not always spoken of that way. For example, pestilence was, or famine rather, wasn't one thing that happened, one famine that took place. It's a famine that takes place, different famines that will take place throughout that seven-year period. Same thing with death, because it says death, as well as famine, as well as the other things, plagues and other things, had a power over the fourth of the earth. Now, folks, almost a fourth of the earth, if you, if you do the math, almost a fourth of the earth is, is destroyed in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Thankfully, it's not our part of the world. Not that we're going to be here to experience it. But most of these things will happen in Europe and in the Middle East. So these four things start the tribulation period. And the Antichrist then all of a sudden just comes on the scene. Now, the Bible says that uh, that one of the first things that happens uh, after the uh, tribulation begins is that God puts 144,000 Jewish evangelists. I think this is Revelation chapter 7. It says that 144,000, 12,000 from each of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel are left on the earth. Now, that's about 1% of the world population of the Jews. Now, stop and think about it. I think I made this comment before, and it, it bears repetition. We don't know when the, rapture, when the rapture takes place relative to the tribulation. We know it's before the tribulation begins, but we don't know if it's one day before. We don't know if it's a month before. We don't know if it's a couple of years before. It could be anything. The Bible really doesn't say. Now, I was raised in the Baptist church, and if the tribulation was on, if the tribulation started Friday, that means Thursday the church was raptured. That's just the way that we, that's just the way it was talked about. But the Bible doesn't say that's the way it works. We don't know. Maybe it takes a while for the church to be gone, for the Antichrist to position himself, for things to be settled, uh, set up so that the war in Ezekiel 38 begins. I don't know. It's possible. But what do you imagine is going to happen as soon as the church is raptured? First of all, who gets taken? Well, the Bible says everybody that believes in Jesus gets taken. Does that mean all the church people go? Not everybody that goes to church is Christian. So you're going to have people that have heard about the rapture. You're going to have people that have heard about Jesus that aren't, that don't go, that are left behind. If that was you, what would you do? All of a sudden everybody disappears. Let's say it does, let's say the rapture does take place on Saturday night. You go to church Sunday morning and you and a small group of people are waiting for somebody to unlock the doors. What are you going to think? There's going to be a, a number of people that are going to get saved right away from the rapture. Right away. Now, if there's a, if there's a, a period of time between the rapture and the tribulation, that means they're going to stay here on the earth. They'll be here when these things begin. If the rapture happens just before the tribulation period, 
then that means you're going to have an influx of people into the family of God right off the bat. And then on the heels of that, you're going to have 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Now, the 144,000 are not all in Israel. They're spread out throughout the world. And these 144,000 immediately go about telling people about Jesus. Here's what's going on. Here's why it's going on. Here's what the Bible says. And they've certainly got the Old Testament to, to back it up. So you can well imagine that immediately after God saves Israel from this, uh, from Gog and Magog and the coalition armies in Ezekiel 38, you can immediately recognize that a lot of people are going to give their hearts to Jesus. Now I don't know what the number of Messianic Jews worldwide is. I don't know if there's a, if there's a way to, to identify that number. I've seen different things said, but I, I don't know if there's an accurate way to, to identify that. So some of the Jews are going to go in the rapture, those that believe in Jesus. Everybody that believes in Jesus, everybody that's made Jesus the Lord of their life will go in the rapture. The Bible doesn't make any distinction. In Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the ten, uh, the ten people, the bridegroom coming and the ten virgins, and some, some had oil and others didn't have oil and stuff like that. That's talking about the nation of Israel. That's not talking about the church. Jesus is talking to the Jews on that. So everybody that's made Jesus the Lord of their life leaves on the first load. But there's going to be a lot of people that realize the train just left the station. What are we going to do? And so there's going to be a, a huge influx of people worldwide that get saved and seek the Lord right after the rapture took, takes place, and especially after the tribulation, the first day of the tribulation, when God shows himself strong on behalf of Israel. So the, uh, then the Antichrist comes on the scene. He tries to become the world leader. He makes a peace a treaty and a peace agreement with uh, with Israel, and, uh, and and he sets himself into position to... Be the leader of the world. Um, the Bible skips forward a little bit in Revelation chapter 7 and again in chapter 9. Well, I tell you what, turn with me to chapter 7. Maybe we better read some of this. I've got a problem in that I can't read and reference everything that I speak to. And so I'll try to give you some of the, uh, uh, some of the references. But you can well understand we'd be here forever. If we, if we gave you a scriptural reference for every comment that we're making. Revelation chapter 7, it talks about the 144,000. And in the same seventh chapter, it tells about the result of their ministry. Now, here's why some people think that the rapture takes place in the middle of the, the uh, tribulation period. Let's start reading in verse um, 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great number. Now, after this means after the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are identified. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds of people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robe and palms in their hands. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, palms in their hands. That sounds like Jewish worship, doesn't it? And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Now contrast that with the song that the elders sung that we looked at earlier, where it talked about, Worthy art thou, and thou hast redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. Notice the contrast in what the great multitude uh, sings and the way they worship, as opposed to the crystal sea and the 24 elders that we looked at earlier in chapter 5. And one of the elders, uh, well, no, I skipped over some. Verse 11. And unto all the angels, 
and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto the, our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? Where did they come from? Notice the elder, the one that has represented the church, who was in heaven from the beginning of the tribulation period, now ask, who is this great multitude? The elders don't represent them. They are foreign to the elders. They're not a part of the church. Doesn't mean they're not saved, but they're not a part of the church company. So he asked, who are these people? And I said, sir, you know, you're the one that knows. And he says to me, these are they which are come out of great tribulation. So that means they came to heaven during the tribulation period. This is about at the three and a half year mark, right at the halfway part, halfway mark of the tribulation. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Notice they weren't given white robes. They had to wash their robes. There's another distinction between the church and the great multitude. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. That means this is what happened during the tribulation period, the famines and the plagues and the, the other stuff. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Notice the difference in what the Bible talks about the church being caught away and the great multitude. The church is caught away and it says the dead in Christ rise first. There's no resurrection of the dead with the great multitude being caught up into heaven. The Bible says that the church meets Jesus in the air. No reference of that with the great multitude. Their, their worship is different. They're worshiping as Israel worships, not like the church worships. They don't talk about anything about being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb or being made kings and priests unto God. There, this is why there's some controversy in the body of Christ about when the rapture is. Because people read this verse of Scripture and they think, well, that's the church. Well, it's not the church. Those are the people that were saved during the tribulation, primarily through the work of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, maybe also others that were saved because they were in church, they had some church background, some church connection, some uh, some loved ones perhaps that had witnessed to them, but they had never received. But then when the tribulation events, rapture and tribulation events take place, then they give their hearts to Jesus. These are the ones that make up the great multitude. And they come up at about the halfway part, halfway point of the tribulation. Now, at the halfway point of the tribulation, the uh, the Antichrist changes things. A lot of things happen at the three-and-a-half-year mark, three-and-a-half-year point of the tribulation, the, half mo- the halfway mark. A lot of things happen. Let me give you some of the references. One of the first things that happens is the Antichrist breaks his agreement with Israel. This is spoken of in Daniel chapter 9. The tribulation saints, these are the great multitude, the Jews and the Gentiles are caught up and escape the wrath of the Antichrist. When the Antichrist breaks his peace agreement with Israel and wages war on Israel, then this great multitude is snatched away before he can harm them. Here's God doing his thing. Here's Jesus protecting the people that that make him the Lord of their lives, even though the Antichrist is in his power. He's doing his thing. He's doing everything he can. And every time the Antichrist says, here's what I'm going to do, God says, zoop. That's not going to work. The next thing it talks about is an upheaval of nature. We'll, we'll refer to that. Turn back with me, over with me to chapter 8. We'll look at that in just a minute. 
It says the Antichrist moves against Israel and God hides the remnant, those that are unsaved, those that are still unsaved in Israel, the Jews that are unsaved. He hides them away. Both Revelation chapter 12 and Daniel chapter 9 talks about this. It says that the Antichrist destroys the religious system, the world church, the harlot that he has established, and he declares himself as God. Now, Daniel speaks of this, and also the, this is the abomination of, that Daniel refers to, along with Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, refer to this as well. The false prophet introduces the mark of the beast and attempts to control commerce. The false prophet introduces idolatry, worship of the image of the beast, the two witnesses begin their ministry. We want to talk about that in a minute. The angelic ministry begins and the plagues begin. All these things happen at the halfway part of the tribulation. Now, the first part of the tribulation isn't too bad. Only a fourth of the world is destroyed. Plagues, pestilences, earthquakes, stuff like that. You know, just normal stuff. But at the halfway point of the tribulation, where the Antichrist really shows who he is and comes against Israel... Um, there's no way to describe it. I mean, you could say all hell breaks loose, but it's really not. I mean, it's God breaks loose. But stuff starts happening like crazy. Now, there's still 144,000 Jewish evangelists here on the earth. The great multitude is raptured, but the 144,000 are not yet. They are raptured in the last month of the tribulation period. So they're here for six years and 11 months, roughly. Thereabouts. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but it indicates to us that they're here just about to the end. And so they continue their ministry. They're still trying to get people saved. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Since the revelation is the revelation of Jesus, please notice that the mercy of God is continually extended to people even while his wrath is being poured out. Still being extended to people. It says that at the halfway point of the tribulation, we'll take a couple of these. We can't talk about all the things that we mentioned, but a couple of things are significant. One is the Antichrist says after three and a half years, he's been in charge now for roughly three and a half years, maybe just a little bit less. He's in charge and he says, I'm God. I haven't told you this before, but I've got something to let you know. I'm God. And then all of a sudden in Revelation chapter 8, let me show you what happens. Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire into the altar, the fire of the altar, and cast into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. At the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation, a third of the trees are gone. Now, if you know anything about how... Science works and all that kind of stuff. Trees are necessary to, to clean the air. Trees are, are pollution scrubbers. They eat up carbon dioxide or take in carbon dioxide and they, they release oxygen. Well, if a third of the trees are gone, you could well understand that it's going to have an impact on the environment. All the green grass goes away. Folks, if all the green grass goes away, then that means there are no, there is nothing for cattle to eat. The food supply is devastated. All these things happen right after the guy says he's God. Now, here's the, here's the significant part. The Antichrist sits in the temple, of, uh, uh, the temple of God in Jerusalem. It's been rebuilt by that time. The Antichrist probably has a lot to do with that, uh, allowing it to happen at least. And so he stands up in the temple and says, I'm God. In, in what represents to the Jews, who are the only ones that God's still really trying to reach, the majority of those that he's trying to reach, he's hiding them away. He stands up in the temple of the Lord and says, I'm God. And all of a sudden the earth just comes undone. 
Now, if you're still on the earth and you're hearing and seeing by worldwide news that he's pronounced himself God and then all of a sudden earthquakes take place and then something hits the earth that destroys the trees and the grass and all that kind of stuff, what kind of God are you thinking he is? Oh, well, you don't mean God that controls the weather. You don't mean God that controls earthquakes and stuff then, do you? Because he can't control anything. Every time the Antichrist stands up and says he is something or he's going to do something, Jesus says, watch this. He disproves everything that he says. It goes further. It says in verse 8, And a second angel sounded, and it was, uh, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. That's that's fish. There's the food supply. And had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many died because of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. That means there's only eight hours of light per day. And I beheld an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. The reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So there's a tremendous upheaval of nature that takes place. All this to show that God is God, no matter what the Antichrist claims and the Antichrist does. Now, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the mark of the beast, or three-and-a-half-year point of the tribulation, the mark of the beast is, is introduced. Now, everybody's heard about the mark of the beast. It's some kind of mark that you have to take in your hand and your forehead that controls whether or not you can buy and sell. Folks, you need to understand something. The devil doesn't have anything new. It's not like... He's got his real big bag of tricks waiting for the tribulation period. And it seems to me that a lot of the church, um, well, I started to say a lot of the church seems to be asleep, but I, I think a bigger part of the church just doesn't think. And I don't mean that to be a criticism. I, I, I really think that a lot of times we get distracted and, and we get involved in other stuff and we don't stop to think about things. If the devil doesn't do anything new, he doesn't have anything new to use during the tribulation period, then that means he's just going to try to accelerate during the seven years of tribulation the same things he's trying to do now. The Bible bears this out by saying the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the, in the earth. The Antichrist himself, the individual, is not in place because he hasn't been released. The church is still here. But the devil's not going to do anything new as far as his means and his methods and his vehicles are concerned. That means the same way the devil's going to try to control the earth during the tribulation is the way he's trying to control the earth now. And how does he try to control the earth? Through commerce, through buying and selling, through government. By telling people what they can do and what they can't do and how they can do it. Or how they can't do it. Folks, the church needs to wake up. That's the same stuff that's happening now. One of the biggest mysteries in, of, of all the universe, in my opinion, is going to be one of the biggest surprises. Maybe that mystery is not a good way, word to use. Let's use the word surprise. One of the biggest surprises in all of the universe, in the history of mankind, is going to be when people stand before the Lord, having seen how everything plays out, and they're going to think, well, I didn't, I didn't realize that everything was the devil attacking God. I was involved in politics, and I was just trying to make the world a better place. I was just trying to clean up the environment. 
I was just involved in banking and finance. I was just trying to take care of things as I understood them. And people failed, Christians failed to recognize that everything that's going on, environment, politics, banking and finance, everything that's going on is a byproduct of the devil's attack He's waging war against God. Finally, during the tribulation, God says, okay, I've had enough of this. And then he does something. Everything. And the reason why the, the America, at least, in my opinion, is in the mess that it's in is because the church is standing back saying, well, none of this has anything to do with God. Everything has to do with God. Everything that's taking place in our country, everything that's going downhill in our country is an attack against God. The economy tanking. By the way, you remember in 2009 when President Obama was going to give us a laser-like focus on jobs? Notice nobody talks about jobs anymore. Because the idea is the economy is what it is. Might as well get used to it. This is the way it's always going to be. It's never been this way before. Why is it okay now? There were politicians that were screaming during President Bush's year saying, where are the jobs, Mr. President? Who's screaming now? Just the people that are hurt. And they really don't have a voice. Why? Because it's the devil's attack against God. Folks, it's not Republicans against Democrats. It never has been. It's the devil against God. Now, that doesn't mean the Democrats are the devil and the Republicans are are on God's side. Boy, would, would it be that that were so? But you got just as many people in the Republican Party that are on the devil's side as on God's. And there may even be a couple of Democrats that are saved. I'm not sure. <laughs> if so, they're staying hidden pretty well. But the reality is this. It's all about spiritual things. Every bit of it. People have dedicated their lives to endeavors and areas, and they're going to find out this was all about spiritual stuff. I thought it was just about what I was interested in. It's all about spiritual things. And so when the Antichrist stands up in the halfway point of the tribulation and says, I'm God, God says, really? Well, then let's see how you handle this. And it continues over and over and over again. Now, look with me to Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see this. This is my favorite part of the, of the whole book. Because at the halfway point of the tribulation, the Bible is very specific. It talks about the two witnesses, the beginning of the ministry of the two witnesses. It says very specifically that they operate for 42 months. That's three and a half years. It even gives us the number of days that make up three and a half years. It says that they operate for three and a half years. That means from the midpoint of the tribulation to the last day of the tribulation. Last days of the tribulation is pretty significant. It's at the midpoint that the Antichrist stands up and says, I'm God. So right on the heels of that, the great multitude has been taken up. They've been raptured to get them out of the of the, the line of fire of the Antichrist. And now you've got two guys. We don't know who they are, but two witnesses. And notice what it says about these two guys. Um, well, let's just start in verse 1. It says, and there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without or outside the temple leap out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city, that's Jerusalem, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Here's where the Antichrist sets up his headquarters at the midpoint of the tribulation in Jerusalem. That's where he declares himself to be God. 
And I will give, verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. Now, folks, I don't, I don't think there's any way that any of us could qualify as one of the two witnesses. But if God's looking for, for people to volunteer, I would love this job. <laughs> Seriously, love this job. For three and a half years, these guys are standing there as the the only voices of the Lord. Now, the 144 evangelists are still there. They're out preaching, but they're undercover. They're, they're you know, escaping and, and hiding away and stuff like that. They're still getting people saved, still doing the work of the Lord. But these two witnesses are right out in front. They're right out in Jerusalem where the, the Antichrist sets up his headquarters. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. I like these guys. (laughs) These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. (laughs) Right under the nose of the Antichrist that says he's God. Breaking news on CNN. Today, God got up and started his daily routine. In additional news, two witnesses are killing everybody in sight. <laughs> they speak, and it, the heavens shut up and don't rain. And they've hit the earth with another plague. But God is holding a press conference at 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. Saying everything is going to be fine. Folks, that's what's happening. It's so stupid. For this idiot, the Antichrist, to stand up and say that he's God when God is showing himself through guys, two witnesses that are breathing fire. Literally, it says fire proceeds out of their mouth. The Antichrist sends the military to take care of them. You think this wouldn't make a good movie? Man. And they shall have, when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the streets. Now this is a, a three and a half year su- summary of what takes place during the, the ministry of these three, two witnesses. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, in other words. And they of the people and of the kindreds and tongues and and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because that these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Looks like they win. Not so much. Verse 11, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God. I love that phrase. The spirit of life from God. Entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear came upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Now that's the last day of the tribulation. 
We just encapsulated three and a half years regarding just the ministry of the two witnesses. Now, there's a lot of other stuff going on during that three and a half years. It talks about further upheavals of nature. Um, it talks about uh, um, plagues and different things like that that are taking place. But I want you to see over and over again, I want you to see, here's what God does when the devil makes his boast. Now, can I ask you a question? Is God different then than he is now? The Bible says God never changes. Is the devil different then than he is now? No, he's got a little bit freer reign because the church is still here hindering him. But the devil hasn't changed or doesn't change in Revelation. God doesn't change during Revelation. So what's the difference in what God is willing to do now as opposed to what God's willing to do then? What's the difference? None. That's the very reason why the Antichrist can't be revealed as long as the church is here. There's a lot of other things we could talk about. I'm I'm out of time, so I won't go any any further. It talks about the last seven plagues. Um, Let me close with this. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 15. Let me finish with this. This is after the 144,000 are caught up. 144,000 Jewish evangelists are caught up into heaven uh, about a month before tribulation ends. Six six years and 11 months into the tribulation period. That's in chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, it talks about one final group. Verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's the church that was spoken of in Revelation chapter 5, or Revelation chapter 4, I should say. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Notice those are two different groups. It says, I saw the sea of glass, that's the church, mingled with fire, and the others that stood on the sea of glass. Now, who were the others? The others were the ones that came out of the tribulation. They got victory over the beast and over the mark of the beast and over all the stuff the Antichrist did. So it speaks of two different groups. In other words, this is the whole of the family of God gathered together. Those of the church age that were raptured before the tribulation began and those that were raptured during the tribulation. 144,000 are part of this group as well. You know what's interesting to me? This, uh, this blows my mind every time I see it. John saw himself there. He probably saw himself as one of the 24 elders. Now, he either didn't know that was him or he didn't see fit to sell us that I was there too. Wouldn't that blow your mind? Get caught up into heaven. God says, I'm going to show you things to come hereafter and you see yourself sitting around the throne. Now, I know what you're thinking. That would create a rip in the space-time continuum. (laughs) Apparently it doesn't work that way in real life, only in Star Trek. So I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So you got a Jewish company. The Bible says all Israel shall be saved. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean every last person that's a Jew on the face of the earth shall be saved? Maybe not. But it means that 
God continues to reach out for the sake of his servant Abraham. Because of the covenant that he made with Abraham and his seed and his descendants, God continues to reach out over and over and over and over and over again to Israel. Now, folks, one of the things that, um, uh, well, uh, maybe I shouldn't get into that. It doesn't take a little bit too much time. Here you see not only the church singing a new song, that's the song of the redeemed, but you see them singing the song of Moses, that's the Jews. So it says they sang a new song, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, the King of saints, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Now, the, the um, let me go through this real quickly. At this point in time, we know that it's there's there's no more than a month left of the tribulation because that's when the 144,000 are caught up into heaven. We know when that takes place. So there's we're somewhere in the last four weeks of the seven years of tribulation when Revelation chapter 15 talks about. The only two people that are left on the earth as spokesmen for God are the two witnesses. They're not caught up until the last day of the tribulation. And they're raptured just like everybody else is raptured, just at a different time and in a different manner. Well, for some, not even in a different manner. And it starts, it ends, the tribulation ends the same way that it starts, with a voice saying, come up here. Now, during that last month of the tribulation period, there are seven final plagues that take place. These are told us in Revelation chapter 16. The seven final plagues that take place, the first one is... The boils and the sores that take, that, that come upon all of the people on the earth and they cry out for, for, uh, for pain. It says that, uh, the, the waters or the seas rather become blood. It says that the waters, the rivers become blood. It does away with a third of the world's water, remaining water. It says the sun becomes scorched. It, it, uh, uh, something happens to the sun in the atmosphere so that the, the rays of the sun are burning rays. And we're not talking sunburns. We're talking, you know, Real thing, scorching rays. The next thing it says is darkness covers the earth, and it says people gnaw on their tongues because of the pain. The next thing it says is the river Euphrates dries up to make a way for the army from the east. And then the last thing is the upheaval of nature, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake, so that a third of the cities are destroyed and the islands of the sea disappear. Now, the interesting thing about that to me is that God, in the last four weeks, pours out plague after plague after plague, and it says... Now, some people might hear this and say, well, how could God do that? I thought God was a God of love. I thought God was a God of mercy. Over and over again, it says that when these things take place, it said the people still didn't repent. It's As a matter of fact, it says when God turns the waters into blood, the angels cry out and say that's a righteous judgment that the, the, the killers of the earth, the evil and the wicked of the earth, should have to drink the blood that they spilled. So don't get the idea that God's just mad at people. God's exacting a righteous judgment, a righteous consequence for the evil that's on the earth. And it says again and again and again, it says, and the people failed to repent. The people refused to repent. What would you have to, what would it take? I mean, nobody has any doubt that God's doing this. Everybody knows that it's the enemy of the Antichrist because it's messing up all of his plans. Everybody knows it's God, yet people refuse to repent. 
They refuse to turn away. Refuse to turn away from their sins. And this happens, continues, until the very last day of the tribulation. Now, next week I want to talk to you about the last day of the tribulation. I want to save that for the end because that really has to do with the return of Jesus in his glory. And I'll show you different scriptures, how some people mix that up with the rapture. But here's what I want to leave you with. What's the point of knowing these things? Well, a couple of things stand out to me. One is, I want you to realize that the power of God is shown for one purpose, and that is not to destroy mankind, not to, not to be uh, hard or harsh on them, but he's giving them opportunities to turn away from their sin and from their wickedness, and they refuse again and again and again. But his mercy is still shown, up, shown forth through the 144,000, through the ministry of the two witnesses. He's still reaching out to mankind. But more importantly, to recognize not just the power of God, but remember how Revelation starts off. The book of Revelation starts off with Jesus giving a message to the churches. It's easy for us to overlook that and just, as we did this morning, just skip over to chapter 4 and talk about when John was caught up into heaven and he saw things around the throne of God. He saw the things that were going to happen on the earth and all those other kinds of things. It's real easy to start there and you can get excited about some of that stuff. I do. I understand that. But the book starts. The revelation of Jesus starts with the messages to the church and every church. There's seven different churches that were given a specific message. And every one of those churches are admonished a couple of things in common. Number one, be faithful. Number two, hold fast to the end. Number three, here's the reward for them that overcome. The whole reason that the book of Revelation is there, and and in some ways the book of Revelation is the most important book of the Bible, is the climax. You wouldn't read a story and then stop before you get to the end. I mean, you know, if if the book's coming to a climax, you want to know how it finishes up. The book of Revelation tells you how things finish up. For what purpose? So that we be faithful, so that we hold out to the end, hopefully so that we recognize that God is true to his word and all-powerful. If God can do this stuff, if God can cause a third of the the trees uh, to be destroyed and all the grass to burn up with one vial being poured out upon the earth, don't you think God can meet your needs? I mean, really, how tough is it? Seriously, we look at some of the things that we are facing, we think, oh, this is the biggest problem in the world. Really? Revelation shows us not so much. Maybe God is big enough to handle your things. These are the rewards that belong to them that overcome. You know, Jesus said something interesting in Luke chapter 21. He said, watch and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. He didn't say that if you didn't watch and pray, you wouldn't escape. He said that we should live our lives focused on the things of God so that we be counted worthy of the escape that we'll experience. There's a lot of people that won't be. There's a lot of people that will be in heaven that will not have lived good lives. There will be a lot of people in heaven that made Jesus the Lord of their lives, but they live backslidden. They lived apart from the Lord. They indulged in their own pleasures rather than being doers of the word in their lives. They won't be worthy of the escape that Jesus provides for them. What a shame and an indictment for eternity. We don't want to be that way, do we? Watch and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape these things. The root word for that word escape in Luke 21 is the word vanish. He's talking about live your life so you can be counted worthy of the rapture. 
worthy of the rapture. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Father, thank you so much for revealing the things that you show us in your word. We realize that it's not intended to be a play-by-play, but rather a summary of your mercy and your power. Father, what a privilege it is to be part of your family, to know that when the time comes, when the church age comes to an end, you'll gather us unto yourselves. We, just like John, just like the two witnesses, shall hear the voice that says, come up here. And we'll be caught up to meet you in the air. The dead shall be raised first and then we'll fly away. Even as the old song said, I'll fly away someday. Father, I know to some that it seems like a fairy tale. But it's reality. Because you're not bound by the laws of nature. You're not bound by the things that seem possible to our thinking. But you've made a place for us. And you have a time planned for Jesus to return. Father, our job is to be ready for your return. To be ready for that voice that shouts from heaven saying, come up here. That's going to happen on a real day, Father. We are really going to be caught up together with Jesus. Make that real to us, Lord. Make that a focal point of every day of our lives until Jesus comes. Let us be a people that ask ourselves, is this action, are these thoughts, are these words worthy of being caught up into the presence of God? 